Voice of San Diego podcasts are sponsored by the Bob Nelson Charitable Fund, honoring the San Diego Harbor Police Foundation. This Voice of San Diego podcast is sponsored by Manolatis Nelson Murphy, Advertising and Public Relations. M&M brings decades of experience and their vast network to you. The firm develops insightful strategies and cost-effective tactics to help clients achieve their goals and connect to those who matter most. M&M specializes in media relations, community engagement, crisis communications, and cross-platform marketing. Learn more at mnmadpr.com. Thanks for joining us on the Voice of San Diego podcast in partnership with News Radio 600 Kogo. I'm Sarah Libby, managing editor at Voice of San Diego. And this week we're bringing you our most recent live show. We host a Brews and News at Mission Brewery in East Village. And for this one, Scott, Andy, and I wanted to talk to some of the veterans of San Diego's political scene uh, to talk about what they're watching as we head into the 2020 election season. Uh, We spoke with Carol Kim. She's the political director of the Building Trades Council, which represents construction unions, and Ryan Klumpner, a political campaign consultant. We talked about how they think the Republican Party will fare in the next election cycle after a year with some pretty high-profile defections from the party. And Carol Kim gave us her pitch for why voters should give their stamp of approval to the hotel tax hike measure that would fund a convention center expansion. So enjoy the show. Host, she just helped lead a statewide collaboration of big newsrooms looking into the criminal records of police officers, and she was characteristically about three months ahead of everybody else getting her work done. I'd like to shout out to Jesse, who's here, who helped lead that. Jesse Marks, thank you. She will ruthlessly edit your op-ed, and then you will thank her profusely. Afterward, she's Voice of San Diego's managing editor, Sarah Libby. All right, he recently revealed that San Diego Police Department was not testing a backlog of rape kits up to the standards expected, an investigation that immediately had impact in the city. His two-year-old son is genuinely a delightful human being, adorable, which is hard to understand. (laughs) Hard to figure out how that worked. Yes, his wife. He's Voice of San Diego's assistant editor, Andrew Keats. (laughs) Andy and Sarah, how are you? Great. Good, how's it going? Yeah? Yeah. How are you? You That was good material. Was it? Still working on it. Still working on it. You got stuff to get a tight 10, you know? I probably won't make it in comedy. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. But uh, nonprofit investigative journalism might be able to pull that off. All right, he once was a Republican campaign consultant. Now he's working with Emmanuel Macron to forge a new third party for California. That's not true, I don't think. Emmanuel Macron. I I practiced that for a couple hours. Do not say anything derogatory about pit bulls around him. He will end you. It's a 
big pit bull guy. He is Ryan Klumpner. Welcome, Ryan. She is a former teacher, and voters once spared her from the horrific job of being on the city council, which allowed her to find a job that likely has more influence on local politics. She is the political director for the Building Trades Council, the Union of Unions in the Construction World. She is Carol Kim. Welcome, Carol. What's that? I have two beers. What, get more. Get more beers. Carol, Ryan, how are you? Good, how are you? Great. You do like pit bulls, right? I do. Yeah. I What's, was just saying I also like pit bulls. Well, look at that. I know. We bonded before we came We have here. something yeah. in common. I can't really say it's a bipartisan connection because you're no, you're you don't have a part. We can still say it. It could be nonpartisan. Yeah. It's, it's cross, cross Transpartisan. 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 Postpartisan. Uh, do you have a pit bull, too? I do. You do? I do. Just one? One. Isabel. Ryan has two. I two. know. I'm going to have to catch up. Right now, you used to have, like, 16. Uh, yeah. <laughs> a, lot of, a, lot of, a lot of foster puppies. <laughs> um, we, uh, we have a lot of things to go on. Uh, who are you guys supporting for mayor? I'll let Carol go first. So the building trades does not have a position yet. Not at all. It's, uh, it's, it's, nothing has been ratified, so we are currently, uh, there is no endorsement at this time. Got it. What, yes. what about the political director of the building trades? <laughs> the political Carol director Kim. represents her 35,000 members who have not yet taken a position at this time. Fair huh. enough. Yes. Okay. Sorry to just jump right in on that. Yeah. What was that about? I just, I like to be, you know, edgy. <laughs> Um, Ryan? Uh, I'm supporting Todd Gloria. Really? Yeah. Why is that? Um, we'll start out. He, to my knowledge, has never fallen asleep during a public hearing, which I think is a good, good start for uh, the next uh, leader of the uh, eighth largest city. Um, yeah, I, I, can you explain that reference? Who did? Someone else running for mayor. Really? Um, but I think that, like, beyond that, if we think about what the next mayor is going to face, is it's been a pretty steady eight years. That we've had, you know, let's discount the Filner years. But um, there's a good, I'm of the mind that there's a good likelihood that the next mayor is going to be handling a crisis of one form or another in terms of um, city finances, the economy. You know, this is not going to last forever. The good times are not going to last forever. And uh, I think that that's... Uh, a big calling uh, for the next mayor, and um, we need somebody who's going to be you know, steady and thoughtful and um, out of the current field. I, I think that's uh, something in Gloria. And uh, what are you guys looking for as you analyze it? Carol? I think we're looking for somebody who's going to be able to do a lot of the things that Ryan actually mentioned, which is being able to navigate a changing San Diego. I mean, this, the fact is that we, we've, had, we've had a steady eight years, we've had a steady couple dozen years, right, of sort of the same kind of thing over and over again. We're clearly at a place where we've got a lot of opportunities and also opportunities to do something interesting and different as well as opportunities to continue down that path and possibly aggravate some of the situations that currently exist. So we're looking for somebody who's ready to tackle those challenges and also, of course, 
do it in a way that feels more equitable, feels more inclusive, actually lifts up parts of the community that have long been neglected, and um, really sort of centers working families and their needs as well. So Ryan, I have a question for you. We have, in 2019, seen about one major elected Republican leave the Republican Party every quarter. So we're in, we're, we're in the final sort of six weeks to see if there's one more for the year, make it a, a nice, nice trend line there. Who's next? <laughs> <laughs> Who's next? I don't, I, you know. My question is, so have they, have they really, like, has it really, like, cleaned off everybody who might? I would be surprised if that were the case. Really? Really. Yeah. I think there will be more, whether, yeah. it's this, whether it's in the next six weeks or the next two years. They, I, so believe it or not, this is probably the first time I've really thought about this because I just sort of read the news, like, you know, find out who's left the Republican Party from Voice San Diego. Uh, morning report, sign up for it. Politics report every yeah. Saturday. Um, Who gets so, the politics report here? Everybody? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I, look, I don't, I don't envy any um, Republican in San Diego. I think they're all, uh, for the most part, especially in the city of San Diego, they've had a really hard time over the last couple of years because um, for a very long period of time there was a big, uh, I don't want to say division, but there was two directions that the Republican Party could go. And... Um, uh, Republicans in the city of San Diego were very clearly on one end of that. You know, you look at uh, Mayor Faulkner, and uh, more has been invested in south of eight communities during his tenure than any other uh, mayorship, um, uh, at least in uh, you know the last uh, 30 years. Um, and uh, that side of things lost, uh, and the Republican Party went a totally different direction. So I, you know, none of them are in an enviable position, and. Um, uh, whether they kind of keep doing what, what they're doing. And I know that there's one view that is, you know, you try to turn things around from within. Uh, that's a pretty steep hill to climb these days. And, uh, you know, some of them want to wait it out, and that's, that's their choice. So, I mean, it's a really hard thing for me to speculate on uh, what they're all thinking about because I know that they, think they all, that they all wrestle with this, and it's a very, you know, personal and um, it's a difficult thing uh, to wrestle with. Um, and I respect uh, people who uh, make either decision on what was the metaphor that Brian Jones used on us, Scott? It was something about like landing a plane that's going down. Yeah, I'm gonna yeah. stay in the crashing plane till the very end. And you, you, <laughs> okay, you, that's you line up quite crash. a metaphor. <laughs> right. Along is the plane like? Can you be a Republican who doesn't embrace President Trump? Can you? Can you just? Can you? How long can that? Yeah. Happen. Absolutely. I mean, you can be whatever kind of Republican or Democrat you want to be. And, um, I mean, that is one um, trait of the current era is that, you know, we have a, a deterioration of uh, institutions and trusted institutions. And, um, you know, one factor of that is that there's a wider array of, you know, people in both parties uh, than we've probably had before and a whole bunch of people that aren't in either party. I mean, the fastest growing group, there are people that aren't in either party. So, I mean, you can be whatever kind of Republican. But you didn't feel like you could be. No, I, I didn't want to. Well, I think there's, there's sort of two questions here. The bigger question is, are you going to try to uh, take the Republican Party with you in a direction? Um, and so, you know, how effective you can be at that, I think, is, has yet to be seen. 
we're only three years into this wild Trump era, you know, so how this is going to play out long term, I don't know. Um, what, well, yeah. One of the things I said a couple weeks ago, I'm interested if you agree with it, is that it, you may be able to hold off and see if you can kind of say as little as possible when people ask about Trump, um, kind of pick and choose your words when, when you're forced to for four years, but whether you can do that for eight years. Does it, you know, does, does it seem to you like something will sort of accelerate this process a year from now or maybe absolve, well, I, I, absolve look, the situation I, I mean, to some degree? Part of, part of what you're asking is really, can you be a Republican that does not support Trump and continue to win election? Right. I mean, that's like what you're getting at here. And we have seats in San Diego that we'll find out this coming year. And we have seats where there's not even a Republican running for the first time. So some of that is answering itself. No one in District 1 raised their hand and said, I'm a Republican and I want to run for this seat. That's crazy. So, um, so some of that is sorting itself out. But I mean, so for the people that are in office right now, like, keep in mind, too, that um, whether you're a Republican or a Democrat, you're in a very difficult position uh, with respect to what's going on in Washington because you, the reality is that you need things out of an administration. And so, um, you know, when people are tiptoeing around and being diplomatic about this, I think, you know, it's, 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 we can all have different opinions on how vocal we should be. But keep in mind, too, that um, uh, there's a lot of money on the line for things like affordable housing. Right. So do we want to put that at stake in order to, um, uh, you know, wag our finger and make our, our values known to the rest of the world? Yeah. Um, yeah. Maybe the answer is yes. Maybe Carol, it is. Did you have any thoughts? Well, you know, I, it's what one of the questions that I was thinking about coming into here was really about the question, you know, the fact that we don't have that the local landscape has changed so much. Right. If you right. think back, to, think back to 2012, you guys think back to 2012. And the fact that we had three Republicans and one Democrat running for mayor of San Diego at that time, right? That was in 2012. Um, think about the fact that in 2012, the city council seat for District 1 was a nail-biter. We weren't sure if we were going to be able to hang on to a Democratic majority for that seat. And now we have no Republicans running for mayor. There's no real Republican challenger of any sort that's very particularly legitimate or considered a real threat in just about every race. And the only place where we have multiple Republicans running and talking about how to be a Republican is in CD50, right, Congressional District 50, where, by the way, that was a three-point race last year, right? So it's not even, it's a, such an interesting situation that we're in. And the only, well, we can conceivably say that Kristen Gaspar is talking about how to be a Republican, in yeah. her seat, which is interesting considering that seat went by 20 points, or that district went by 20 points for Hillary Clinton. Yeah, we're going to talk year. about that. Yeah. Kind of I, so I, I have a question for you, Carol, which is in the, the, the city council races where there is a, uh, you know, a widely seen as viable Republican candidate, mm -hmm. um, I think both most people would agree that in uh, D5 and D7, Noli Zosa and Joe Leventhal are in the mold of Kevin Faulkner, Chris Kate-type Republicans, less so than, say, Duncan Hunter, for instance. Um, <laughs> and, but but I, what I wonder is, is, at some point, groups like yours, the Democratic Party, has to start asking about the marginal value of picking up 
a seventh vote on the city council or an eighth vote on the city council and how much that actually gets you. I mean, if you, if one way to think of it is how often do you see the council being forced to consider whether not only that they'll need to overcome a veto by Mayor Gloria or Mayor Bree, but that they might have need extra votes just in case they can't get the veto override that they need. So I wonder, is, does it, is it, at a certain point, does it start to become a question of whether it's worth putting resources into moving from a 6-3 majority to a 7-2 majority or an 8-1 majority? I would say yes at this point. And the reason I say that is because our majorities are, our quote, super majorities are so nascent that they haven't really developed and matured into something that's, that's really strong yet. In fact, one of the things that you've, you've seen recently is the inclusionary housing policy that Georgette Gomez so strongly championed. That failed because we couldn't get the supermajority to vote for it. That went 5-4. It passed the city council 5-4. The mayor vetoed it. They couldn't override the veto. So, but, if, but if you had Mayor Gloria or Mayor Bree there, sure. does it even get vetoed? And you, know, you, you see what it, I mean? Like it, At a certain point, you win so much that winning starts to become less important. I think that then what you do is you, you start splitting hairs on what winning looks like, right? Mm-hmm. So, for, for instance, again, this, this particular inclusionary housing policy was not the policy that everybody on the left really wanted to see. They wanted to see something stronger, more robust, higher uh, percentage of inclusionary housing, um, a higher in Luffy, things that would actually sort of in- really strongly incentivize and actually promote the building of affordable housing in San Diego every time a development went up. So we were really actively advocating for those things. It was very hard to actually get there. We ended up with a, a somewhat, you know, it was, a, it was a definitely a compromise policy, 10% at 50% AMI, and then a, a small, uh, an increase in the Enlufi that wasn't as high as people wanted originally. So all of that said, um, I think then what it comes down to is what does the winning look like? Do you get policies that are actually very progressive or do you get policies that are very moderate? And so at that point, that's when those things shake out. I mean, Democrats, as, as Ryan mentioned, people can be what kind of Democrat, whatever kind of Democrat they want. And so there's a range and a spectrum. And now, interestingly enough, the Democratic Party has become the big tent. Remember we called that about the GOP? We say that was the big tent, you know? Now it's the Democrats who are the big tent. And we have a real range of people We've got folks that are essentially, you know, democratic socialist types who, you know, they want Bernie and they want, all, you know, Elizabeth Warren and all these kinds of things. And then we've got other folks who are much more moderate, you know, and they're, they're, they're more comfortable with a Joe Biden or a Kamala Harris or, you know, those kinds of folks. So in terms of the, the, the spectrum that you've got there, it's, it's broad. And I think that the seventh or eighth vote at that point, really starts to come down to what do those policies look like when you're actually digging into the weeds and getting and figuring out what the impacts and outcomes are going to be. Is the future of the city politics going to be Democrats versus other than Democrats or Democrats versus themselves mostly? Will there be a true alternative outside the party, right? I, I, I don't know whether there will be. I mean, it's almost irrelevant to me. Like, there's, there's a lot to unpack. I mean, so one, I'm going to challenge the idea that, um, locally speaking, the Democratic Party is a big tent party. And uh, a couple reasons for that. And I'm certainly not saying that the Republican Party is the big tent party. Um, <clears throat> but uh, one, the registration numbers are just not bearing that out. Um, 
fastest growing group of voters are people who don't want to affiliate with either party. So whatever the Democratic Party is doing right now, it is not capturing uh, the losses of the Republican Party or anything close to it. Um, two, you know, I think that the real test of whether you're a big tent party is uh, how you handle your endorsements. So maybe local Democrats will be a big tent party, and you would find that in sort of a range, you know, either staying out of uh, primary races or, uh, you know, endorsing kind of a broad range of candidates based on, uh, you know, their appropriateness uh, fit for the district. If the party takes a hardline position that they're going to try to determine which among three or four Democrats is the acceptable Democrat, that is the, the definition of not being a big tent party. So I think that all of these things are yet to be decided. But in terms of like how this is going to play out policy-wise, like let's just take the inclusionary housing for a second here. One of the things that I think has already happened and no one has really um, realized that this has happened is um, that they, they already are the governing coalition, right? Um, and so uh, that's going to be amplified, but let's take inclusionary. If this bigger, bolder, more progressive inclusionary ordinance had come forward, um, you know, when you're the governing uh, coalition, uh, the other thing that comes with that is that you have to be accountable for the actual results that come out of those policies. And the result of that policy would be a stalling of all housing development. This was this, the city's own economic studies of this have said that. There, you would have a decline in production of affordable housing. Um, and that would be something that would have to be answered for in two or three years. Now, are so there Democrats? To, that, let me interrupt real yeah. quick. So for those of you who don't, don't follow as closely, what we're talking about is a fee or a requirement to include affordable housing, uh, mandated affordable housing within your development at a certain percentage of the, of the uh, units. So what is it, uh, 10%? 10% correct. 10% of the units that you build would have to be uh, restricted on their price. And if you don't build them, you'd have to pay a fee. And what they're arguing about is the, the level of the fee. Right. And so uh, the supermajority was not able to pass as large of a fee as they wanted to. Uh, and, and so that's what you're yeah, saying. So, uh, in this hypothetical scenario where you have essentially all Democrats making this decision and they are thinking about whether they are willing to stand by the long-term impacts of those decisions, would there actually be a coalition for a bigger, bolder, a higher fee, a higher requirement given the economic studies around this? I'm going to say I don't think that there would be. I don't think there would be with the current Democrats on the council and I don't think that there would be with future Democrats. Uh, 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 council members. So, like in my view, we're already in this world, and yet people are still thinking that like what they just need is like one more seat. You know, when you get that one more seat, the responsibility of that coalition, people are going to start thinking long and hard about the votes they're taking. One other thing I want to add on, like the District Five, for example, um, I I'm with you, I think, on what you're saying, Scott, and that the marginal value between six votes and nine votes is minimal. The other thing that will happen if the insistence is that there be zero Republicans on the city council is that hold, I'll tell you, holding District 5 in the long run will be an absolute money pit. So um, sure, you know, I mean, I think that will be very interesting to watch. Um, it's going to be, I think that it's going to be a money pit regardless. But I mean, that's the other thing that, that we could end up seeing is that these marginal seats of you know, really no significance to the makeup of the city council just become these astronomical um, uh, campaign money pits. Yeah. Carol, do you want to respond to the points about the affordable housing? I would say that there are actually lots of 
there are various examples of higher affordable housing inclusionary rates and in lieu fees across the country that have not stalled growth. It's a very um, common narrative that is put out by opponents of it. And I think that I think that we need to actually figure out how to build this stuff. And so we've got to try the things that people have tried and succeeded with elsewhere. And, you know, it's true that if you do it all at once and you kind of create a shock to the market, then, you know, things can stall for a little bit, but also that people figure it out and then you suddenly get the units being built. So, you know, we, we, and the, by the way, the, the numbers that we proposed early on were not anywhere close to some of the ones that actually caused that kind of that kind of shutdown of building in other as far as the level of other well, municipalities. I, yeah, I will point out that there's already a cratering in production this year in terms of new new. So we, we are headed into a stall of new housing production, whether Largely we like it or not. Largely because we have actually built out a lot of the developable developable space with lower density things already, or th- or units that are luxury priced, etc. So if you think about downtown, think about all of those luxury condos that have gone up. We could have actually, if we had a real inclusionary housing policy, we could have actually had a bunch of affordable housing units in those high rises. If we had actually had some strong, stronger language around density and the requirement to build the density, the Maker Square or Maker's Quarter, that whole area where you've got all these like six and eight story buildings, those could be actually higher density buildings with more units that could actually house real people. So let's talk about the fact that the cratering is happening because a bunch of things have happened for decades that have actually allowed developers to maximize their profits, not build for what the needs of the community are, and this is something that we need to change. Well, I think it, it could also be that we're on the dawn of a recession. I mean, those happen too. Sure. Yeah. But we're doing all right. Now. <laughs> so I, I, I'm just, I'm just going to flatly dispute the idea that we have run out of space to build. Because if we've run out of space to build, that means that we've zoned very, very badly. And I think that that is, that, that, that is part of the answer. And there's a big question over how we should handle that right now. But one way or another, I don't see how the answer to the need for more housing and more affordable housing is to make housing more expensive, which is what is being suggested here. All right. Did you want to keep going? I want to, yeah, well, I'll just say one more thing. Pull back from the, the... Everybody all right with that big housing debate? <laughs> that was good. That was, that was, this that was is good. Voice of San Diego. If we can't get into the weeds here, then you yeah. can't do it anywhere, right? Well, but the, I mean, the other, the other part of this that we haven't talked about, which is interesting because it's been such a big part in San Diego politics lately, is referendum threat or the non-city council, non-mayor actors. And I don't see any reason to think that that's going away. I mean, I think... Inclusionary was an interesting example. They seemingly had the vote of, of, of ability to, uh, to, to veto the project and not overcome it, but had that not happened, it would have been relatively easy to foresee that developers, you know, $500,000, maybe a million dollars for a campaign is not a lot of money in the grand scheme of, of the types of money that they're talking about in uh, what these pr- projects would mean to them. And so what I want to ask about that is, how do these groups that have been aligned on the center-right, right side of the spectrum for the last two decades, how do they adapt to this new world? How do the, where, does, where does the Chamber of Commerce, Building Industry Association, Restaurant Association, hotel groups, where do they find, find themselves as the politics of San Diego realign to a left-left versus center-left world as opposed to a left-center versus right-center world? Ryan, figure that out, please. That's, <laughs> uh, well, one, um, they're going to have to come up with ideas. 
And so I think any, uh, any industry group um, needs to be able to answer the question when somebody asks, well, what do you think we should do to, for example, house, uh, uh, solve the housing affordability? And if they can't answer that question uh, in a straightforward way, then they're going to be in trouble because um, there will be policies enacted. And whether or not they have a say in those policies will depend on whether they have something productive to offer to it. So I, I think that that is the big hurdle for them. But, I mean, on the point of the referendum, sure. Look, I don't know anyone. I've never met a single person uh, in any field on either side of the aisle that likes the idea of referendums. But the reality is that they are a tool. And when you are talking about, I mean, just to go back to this issue of development, people want to build housing in San Diego and have plans to build housing in San Diego. And if you make it such that they can't do that, all it takes is one person. It is cheap to do a referendum. So it, again, I mean, I think there's this question of like, I would look, I would love to have this like big argument over what exactly inclusionary housing should look like, how we get more affordable housing and all that. But the reality is that there are a whole slew of policies around housing that most of us can agree on, right? <laughs> Uh, the building industry uh, can agree on them. The Yimby Democrats can agree on them. Democrats on the city council can agree on them. And so the real question, especially when Democrats have more control after 2020, will be, do they want to pick the things that are going to be tangled up in referendums, that are going to split their own members, where not all Democrats even want to vote for them, that are going to be controversial with the, the public, uh, or do they want to pick things that they can actually hold a coalition together on and make a real dent in a real problem. Well, one of the things that you see them doing is kind of dressing up policies by making them sound more lefty, right? So, for instance, the middle-income housing program or the moderate-income housing program. For those of speak since we're talking about housing, um, the middle-income policy is one that you, I've actually heard Todd Gloria talk about on, the, on his stump, really during his, uh, on the campaign trail, and this is one where basically they're saying, we're going to give um, affordable housing incentives, things that you give to nonprofit affordable housing developers. We're going to give those kinds of incentives to market rate development for middle-income families. So we're looking at a, a specific range of in, um, income levels, and specifically we're talking about area median income when you're talking about housing rates. And so what, they're, what they started off by proposing was this middle-income thing that was going to be 100% AMI to 150% AMI. 100% AMI is the level at which half of the people in the county make above that and half the people make below that. So I think it's around, what is that, like $91,000 for a year for a family of four. Somewhere in that category is about 100% AMI. So if you're thinking about it, you're basically saying that the... The third quart, the top, second highest quartile of income earners in the county would be the people who'd be able to afford these homes that were getting affordable housing incentives. Affordable housing incentives, which are basically usually given to people or to developers to build housing because, because it's so hard to build housing at that level when you have to restrict the rents and the sales prices, right? So this is the way they do it. They dress up these things that sound like they're good policies that are going to help lots of middle-income people, et cetera. I mean, who's going who's gonna, to uh, disagree with the idea that we need to build more middle-income housing? Everybody's like, yeah, I'm middle-income. I'm middle-income. But what they totally neglect is that why would developers need to build affordable for people who are lower-income 
if they can get the same incentives for building market rate housing and make those kinds of profits on top of it. But, so that's kind of a little bit of, a, of what I think that's sort of the tactic they're going to take. They're going to start taking these policies. They're going to start packing on some of the, the they're going to have components that feel good and, you know, and progressive and whatever. And then they're going to actually just find mechanisms that allow them to continue getting the kind of outcomes they want. Okay. How many of you have something you want to say or ask a question? Any of you? Okay. I need a volunteer. You're going to have to pay a price to come and ask a question. And that is to play this uh, game about the transient occupancy tax with me. So who wants to do that? Anyone? Yes, sir. Come on down. Woo! That's right. Right over here. Uh, all right. What is your name, sir? Nicholas. Nicholas? Yes. What part of the city do you live in? Or is this the region? South Bay. South Bay. I'm off uh, San Isidro. Welcome. Thank you. Yes. Um, all right. So I'll let you ask your question, but you have to do a true or false game with me. All right? So I'm going to read Man, you. A... Come on. <laughs> Sorry, brother. I traveled all the way up here for a true and false. What is this, Jeopardy? <laughs> yes, it's exactly. I am Alex Trebek. Yes. Right? You love oh, me. Oh, I am a I beloved host whoops. of a You didn't see my school show. logo. Sorry. All right. These are things that actually happen, true or false. True or false. Proposition C in February 1965 was approved by 62.5% of voters, establishing the hotel room tax of 4%. False. It's true. Damn it. Proposition <laughs> Hey a, now. This is an 18 plus show, right? Hey now. <laughs> Proposition C in March 2004 would have raised the tax from 10.5% to 13%. It was supported by 62% of voters, but that was not enough. Okay, so if the first one was true, this one has to be false. Uh, that's true, too. Damn it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you see? No, you see hey, sorry, it's not right, my fault. You don't know your, 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 your tax history of the city of San Diego. <laughs> Proposition J. <laughs> Proposition J, later that year in 2004, would have raised the tax also to 13%, well, it was only supported by 42% of voters. True or false? Is this true? It's true. Yeah. <laughs> Do I get a t-shirt? <laughs> no, I'll get kidding. you a t-shirt. I'm kidding. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. <laughs> After those two failures in 2004, the visitor industry gave up and did not try to increase the hotel room tax again. True. No. False. <laughs> the one time it false. <laughs> God, you're terrible. I am. <laughs> That's why There's I'm something more calls. aggressive than false. It's all they do. <laughs> they, ended up, they did end up passing a 2% assessment that the visitor industry spends themselves outside of city council control. True or false? Just spit one out, man. True. <laughs> I, was ten year, I was 10 years old. I'm, I'm yeah, saying they true. They did. They did do I'll that. I'll go with all the adults here. All right. I'm sorry. This is a, this is a random one. Proposition B in 2008 would have changed the master plan for the port to put a roof over the 10th Avenue Marine Terminal and then build a stadium on top of that. Uh, party on top and work below. I want to know what that guy's answer. True. <laughs> it's true. True, yeah. 71% of voters voted against that. Was I saw all right, finally, in 2014, the Chargers tried to raise the tax more than it than had ever been proposed before so that they could build what would be affectionately known by everyone in the county as a conveyance. True. No, it's not. It was 2016. Sorry. 
I let the guy I watch ask his question. Poor kid. Yeah, that was good. You know what? It's can you hard. Curve, can that you curve was the Simon a Simon Says move. So that was the full-on Simon Says move, right? Like yeah. the game Simon Says? Yeah. That's what you did, yes. only with questions. Sorry, that's a fun game. <laughs> All right, Nicholas, uh, what's your question for the panel? So I actually have a question specifically for you, because uh, one of the oh. things you mentioned actually was kind of regarding the housing situation. You were asking, what are we going to do to build it? it? The first question should be who? Because I think one of the things that we also kind of miss is, and actually the college is actually hosting a panel next week, a student panel that I'm actually part of, because I've been in that situation. And the first thing that I always notice is that nobody asks who should we ask for the help because it's always the silent minority that's always been left out. Because we always go to contractors, we always go to other cities, see how they're doing. When is it actually going to be the opportunity for the city to finally go up and say, hey, let's ask the community, the homeless community, what they want, because we always say, oh, they want this, this, and this, but in reality, we actually want this. So when is actually going to be that first step towards co that communication? Because there seems to be no communication at all. Well, I think you're taking it, right? Let's hear it with, for Nicholas. That's a great question. <laughs> I, um, we, yeah, please. Are you asking me specifically? Specific, yeah, because you were the one who made the comments. So that's sure, sure. Well, I think that's a totally legitimate Thing to ask for it. You know, we talk a lot about, especially in the progressive communities and the progressive movement, we talk a lot about centering impacted communities. And that's something that we have to get better at, especially when we're talking about things like housing, the housing concerns that impact lower income communities, lower income people, homeless people. We actually imagine that their input is not valuable or necessary because they're not going to be putting up the resources to actually build it. But the fact of the matter is, we know that we have all kinds of programming out there for the homeless that often just doesn't take. There's plenty of empty beds. You know, Michael McConnell likes to tell me all the time, there are plenty of empty beds in shelters that just aren't being taken, and it's because we have, nobody's asking the homeless what they want. So, you know, this is a, it's a concern, and we definitely need to do more of that. I agree with you. Uh, Ryan, I forgot to mention, Ryan's on the Housing Commission. Are you actually hearing from people at the commission who would be affected by the policies you're always dealing with? Yeah, all the time. I mean, um, uh, the last two meetings, we've had people that uh, have uh, either been recently uh, evicted, um, you know, uh, telling us about their experience. Uh, we've talked to people that, that are homeless. I've toured all of the uh, homeless shelters. And I mean, I think that your, your point is really um, well taken. And, uh, you know, I want to give credit to everyone that's been working on this issue because this is an incredibly complex uh, issue to solve, and everyone you ask has a different um, opinion on it. But um, there was a uh, a big study that was just done. They did talk to people who are experiencing uh, homelessness, which I think is very important. Um, a lot of the you know the the stuff that I've uh, learned at the Housing Commission has been from you know going through those those shelters, talking to people about what works, what doesn't work here. Um, it, there's a granularity to understanding the needs of that population that I think can only be picked up. You cannot pick it up at the, at the top. You only pick it up at the bottom. I mean, even down to just stuff like um, uh, uh, we're going to be voting to uh, expand the shelter at Golden Hall. And I, I never would have thought of this, but one of the appeals of Golden Hall when we went through, and this is primarily for um, you know, uh, families and uh, trans uh, transitional age youths, right? One of the things about Golden Hall that makes it unique is it's the only shelter 
that has carpet, like hotel-style carpet through the whole building. And this is a building that was not designed for this, and that probably would not have been put there had it been designed for this. But, you know, people repeatedly told us, like, what a difference it makes to be in a space that just feels a little bit more like it's designed for habitation um, than uh, an outdoor uh, tent. You know, and people in uh, uh, the the other spaces had, uh, you know, similar things. But, um, you know, so little stuff like that, I think, makes a big difference. And the other thing that I think that we're learning is, you know, to be flexible and be nimble. And a lot of the requirements on, you know, I think this is one thing that's been learned about shelters is you, you need to serve the people that, that need it. And having a lengthy list of requirements for them to get on, in, in the door does not work. So the shelters that are working well, they accept the fact that people are going to come and go. You can't make them stay there, you know. But they will use it more if you have that open door policy that you're there when they need it. And if they want to leave, that's the right. Um, you get more people into shelters that way when you take that approach. So, um, you know, I, your, your point is taken. I think we need to do a better job of doing that. But, you know, I also kind of want to express to you, like, the lengths to which everyone who's working on this issue is um, trying very, very hard to uh, come up with solutions that work for the population. Nicholas, thank you so much. Thank we you. will get you a, a shirt. Everybody, yeah. Here. I was kidding about the shirt. I was kidding. No, we take it. Oh. Wear it proudly <laughs> everywhere. Wear it. <laughs> All right. So um, I talked about the TOT and the history of the TOT. It does go back to 1965. The visitor industry always uh, claims it's it's theirs, and they've they've reluctantly had to cede it over time. You are now part of a coalition trying to increase the tax. It would increase uh, a lot for, for hotels around the convention center, a little bit less for hotels outside of that area, and a little bit less for the ones farther out in the city of San Diego. Uh, and that would fund a convention center expansion, homeless services, uh, and road repair. And how is that campaign going, Carol Kim? It's going. <laughs> it started. Uh, you know, um, we, we, we were basically starting. We've, we started the research for it. We've been doing that kind of stuff. Um, it's, we're finding out that people are actually willing to support it, which is exciting. Like, that's, that's the good news, because these are things that actually need to be done. I know that there's a, a very common and overriding narrative that's often out there about convention centers not being profitable, et cetera, et cetera, and being loss leaders. Ours happens to be a unicorn. And this is the thing that I want San Diegans to know, is that our convention center actually brings in a ton of revenue for the city's general fund. And without it, I don't know where that money would come from. I don't know where we would make up that difference. And um, beyond that, we actually are turning away a lot of business because we don't have the kind of floor and exhibit space that we need. And even just beyond that, one last thing I'm going to say about that building is that it's old. It's 30 years old this year. In fact, we're celebrating the 30th anniversary of the convention center. And every time it rains, that roof leaks. If you ever walk into, or if it's raining, or I want you to walk up to the lobby and look through the glass doors, what you will see are trash cans and buckets all over the lobby catching the drips coming down from the ceiling. 
which is a mortifying thing when you think about the fact that this is also known as a premier world-class destination for conventions. And so, um, you know, it's, it's one of those things we actually need to give it some love, repair it, and keep it going because it is a bit of a golden goose for the city. I don't think people realize that, and it needs to be something that we actually maintain and continue to, to, to develop from. You wouldn't happen to be on the Convention Center board, would you? I would happen to be on the Convention Center board, <laughs> yes. Uh, just a point of trivia, the TOT, the transient occupancy tax, the hotel room tax, was increased in 1978 by two percentage points to build the Convention Center. So uh, it has a history of being tied to that. Uh, Ryan, you've been watching from the outside. You're not working on the campaign, correct? I'm not. Um, how is it going? Crush it. <laughs> <laughs> Well, not working on the campaign, I, I can't uh, answer in too much uh, detail about that. But, I, you know, uh, what I would say as somebody who's observing it from the outside is that, you know, anything requiring two-thirds, that's a really tough lift. And the, the first and most important thing is uh, that you have the biggest, broadest coalition possible, and they absolutely have that. Uh, you know, uh, Carol just told me, I, I, will, I will now vote yes on uh, that measure. Um, you, oh, you, were, you were iffy? I, I was iffy until she uh, gave, me the, gave me the spiel. Does, yeah. does, does Mayor know you were iffy? No, he does not. Uh, yeah. I'm sure he'll be pleased to hear that. He's I'm, a devoted I'm, listener. I'm joking. Um, yeah, so, uh, I mean, two, two-thirds is a... Is a Wait, is are a, you joking about your vote, yes? Uh, no, I'm okay, dead right, serious okay. about that, yeah. Um, it, it's a really tough hurdle, and you know, I think if, if, if you look at two-thirds measures across the, the board... The thing that matters even more than you know what happens with the yes campaign is how much of a no campaign there is, because the no campaign, uh, a no campaign, has a, a low threshold on a, a two-thirds measure. They don't have to win; they just have to get some, you know. And um, and so everything that you know I'm observing from the outside here is that uh, there's a big, broad coalition. There's not much of an organized no campaign. All those things uh, bode well for the measure, but anything can happen. Sarah? I was just going to say, I think it's really interesting. I think this is the first time in maybe two years, maybe more, that I've heard anyone talking about the measure actually talk about the convention center, which is kind of at the heart of it. It seems like a decision was made a long time ago to really focus on the homelessness money aspect of it. Um, So, I mean, it makes sense that you're on the board. Uh, but (laughs) Well, I I think that... So just to kind of provide some history and background, when we were coming, when the, when the Citizens Initiative was being put together, that was during the height of the Hebei crisis. So people were actually, the, the, the count of deaths were actually increasing week to week as we were putting that initiative together. So that was always front of mind for us. We really wanted to make sure that we did something with this that was going to be able to help us really tackle meaningfully the homelessness crisis and the, the situation that we were absolutely living through at, in that time, which felt horrible. So that, that was one of the reasons that that became one of the major selling and talking points, because we, we, all of us were just thinking about it constantly. It was in our faces. We were, we, I mean, Betsy Brennan was here earlier. We were all living and working in that environment where we were surrounded by people who were impacted by this, and it was, it was hard. So I think that's one of the reasons, but I think it's also really important to note that, you know, the convention center itself is actually the heart of this particular ballot measure. I don't think we should deny that. That's important, and 
it's actually a good, positive thing for the city of San Diego and the, and the broader region as well. So this, I don't see why we wouldn't talk about that being the purpose for it. In fact, I, I would want to, I mean, I really appreciate uh, Carol explaining the convention center because, uh, to your point, Sarah, um, you know, you can have a TOT measure that doesn't have a convention center. You can have a, a TOT tax increase that doesn't have a convention center uh, component to it. Um, and that would be a real shame because what does make the convention center uh, unique and worth the investment is that it does generate money. So, you know, the, 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 the choice right now is whether we vote on the measure at hand. The more broad choice is whether we're going to just spend money or whether we're going to spend money, yes, on all those things that we like and also invest some money so that we have more in the long run because, you know, no one would like to see more affordable housing built than me. And there's, it's the only thing limiting this. I don't this know if is that's true. The, yeah, I'll, I'll give that to you. Uh, the, the only thing limiting this is the amount of money we have to spend on it. And sure, we could just spend TOT money on it and just that. In the long run, it's going to be better if we have the convention center generating larger amounts of money. Andy? I think if you look at the last, you know, even just the last decade of TOT convention center measures, it tells a story of a negotiation that's been happening in public slowly in like four-year increments where each time the measure has failed, it hasn't gone away, but it has gotten slightly more lucrative for the people who are not fundamentally driven by a desire to see the convention center expand. The deal has gotten a little bit better for them every time it's come back to life. Does that create a perverse incentive where it's worth killing this to see what you can get next time around? <laughs> Carol? Perverse incentive? You know, you know what's so interesting about that? One of, the, one of the things that you will hear every time people discuss this, and I'm sure you guys have heard it, and I'm sure Ryan's heard it a million times, and people in this room as well, is there's this, there's this um, sort of conventional wisdom that you can only bring something back a certain number of times. Right. So the Which idea the convention is convention center disproves entirely. <laughs> right. Right. But also, I want to point out that that taxes. People think that the convention center itself has been on the ballot multiple times. It hasn't. That's actually not true. How many times has it been, Scott? You just went through all the data. There. Well, they tried to put it on a ballot, but just for the hotel owners. Right. Yeah, that and that was illegal. Correct. So we didn't do that. So we didn't do that. Yes. And then there's the convadium. Right. That's not the same thing. Well, the San Diego Convention Center. You can put a boat show in I, it. <laughs> I want to. I want to say the con- expanding the convention center that we currently have. Right. How many times has that been on the ballot? Never. Exactly. That's the thing, right? Everybody thinks we've put the convention center on the ballot multiple times, six to eight or ten times. Like they literally think they voted it down over and over again. That's not happened. So that's an interesting thing as well. Is that. Our, we have talked about the convention center for so long that we actually think we voted on it over and over again. Yeah. We never have. This is going to be the first time it's actually on the ballot for this reason. And so that's something to keep in mind as well. And, you know, I, and going back to all this other stuff, the convention center, beyond the fact that it brings in all this revenue, it actually employs thousands of local San Diegans with good union jobs, believe it or not. So that means they got good benefits, et cetera. We All want right. to keep those. Who wants to interact with the panel? I need another volunteer. Bruce, you had your hand up before. Come on down. You're the next contestant. <laughs> All right. We have a uh, 
Another special game, true or false? True or false, uh, no, no gimmicks on this one. Straightforward. Bruce right over here. Bruce, uh, tell us what part of town you live in. City Heights. Okay, welcome. And, uh, you know, what, what, what's you, when did you start following Voice of San Diego? Probably five years ago. Good, good. Well, welcome. Member. Sorry, go ahead. Member of Voice of San Diego. Member. Monthly contributor. All right, so Sarah has uh, a list of statements. Uh, do you want to tell them? Uh, basically, it's Kristen Gaspar said this. True or false? <laughs> Kristen Gaspar is a, a city a county supervisor, District 3, running for re-election. She's been saying some stuff lately. <laughs> Sarah. So first I want to stipulate that nothing will ever top Andy's Duncan Hunter impression, so I'm not going to try to do a Kristen Gaspar impression. Um, so this Andy, is just that real quick. I'm just trying to take another look at you. It's <laughs> <laughs> good. It's great. All right, true or false, Kristen Gaspar said this. State law says that we cannot lock our foster youth facilities. Now, what's happening is the pimps have become quite aware of these policies, and they're reaching out to these girls over social media. They're turning up at our foster youth facilities. They take these girls out Friday. They pimp them out over the weekend, and they return them Sunday night. True. She did. She said that on the Voice of San Diego podcast. Yeah. I think the question was, what did you have for breakfast? So. <laughs> I kid. I kid. <laughs> All right. Kristen Gaspar said this, true or false? Your pockets may feel a little heavier, and you can thank the president for that. I'm going to say that's probably true as well. It's False. But Kimberly Guilfoyle, Donald Trump Jr.'s girlfriend, did say it. <laughs> All right. To use the word animals doesn't even begin to describe MS-13 gang members. If anything, the president was soft using that term. And you can see why the president feels the way he does calling the media fake news. I'm also say true on she did say that on Fox News. <laughs> Bruce doing sure. well. Good job. Okay, I'm glad the cheer was for Bruce. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Did Kristen Gaspar say this? No means no, even if you don't like the outcome. I'm going to say yes. That's she true. did say that. She was talking about maneuvering by the county supervisors on their vote on voting. All right, last one. I love this county, and I am worried for this county. I love San Diego, and San Diego scares me right now. Voter fraud, drug cartels, transit spending, human smuggling, bike lanes. There's a lot <laughs> happening that we're on the front lines of that frankly scares me. Well, everybody knows bike lanes are terrifying. <laughs> <laughs> Is that true? So true. That one's false, but really good effort. <laughs> All right, the county supervisor races are huge. Uh, Bruce, sorry. Do you have a question? Yes, I do. And so 
Good news, good news. Congratulations, we're going to have a supermajority. Congratulations, as you said, you're going to have to live with the results. And the UT published a story about deficits going out for quite some time. Are you going to be able to enact the progressive agenda that, you know, is laid out? Because, as I recall, one of the things they said was progressive agenda got us to those deficits. So, Yeah, that's an interesting question. The UT's front page kind of made me a little uncomfortable because it had a big picture of the shelter with people who use the shelter to illustrate the, the deficits that were coming. And yes, the increased homeless spending... That's not the issue. I'll just say that is not the issue with the city budget. Right. It felt a little bit awkward to me that, they, that these two people in particular were being almost identified as the ones causing this uh, deficit. And we all have trouble pairing photos. I understand the, the issues with that. But what would you say is driving that deficit then? I mean, it's, it's, it's the cost of... Of employees going up, and, I, and it, it's it, inflationary um, uh, issues involved. Yeah, you're asking me to get way out of my depth here. <laughs> yeah, <okay. laughs> city budget. I'm sorry, you said uh, you, you know, something. To uh, say. I don't know. Uh, you don't have to defend. I get. I, you know, I will say that um, Council uh, Member uh, Bree uh, made a big deal out of. It. Basically, she said today that she she doesn't know what's driving the cost either. She's the chair of the budget committee, so. Um, I, uh, you know, I, <laughs> I think that um, there are a lot of reasons, um, and I'm not going to try to summarize them all. But this is going to be probably the defining issue for the next five years. Yeah, Carol. So that's a good question. So, what can you do in a in a deficit cycle that you might want to see done? And the city has a lot of Carol or uh, uh, Georgette Gomez had a lot of uh, big visions for housing for. Uh, infrastructure for parks, there's new fire stations, there's all kinds of things, but does that all need to be sort of bottled up and just uh, into sort of like an emergency situation? I think, um, well, you know, we have to decide what our priorities are. That's that's the political answer, but that's also just the true answer, right? We have to decide what our our priorities are when it comes to a deficit budget situation, yeah. right? It, and it handcuffs you, doesn't it? it? It does make things challenging, but we can also do a lot of policy work, I think, that isn't necessarily tied to that. So um, those, are, those are opportunities that I think that we will have regardless of whether or not there's a deficit. And, you know, I think that those opportunities are going to exist. And there's also hopefully going to be some revenue streams that will be coming online should, for instance, a TOT tax measure be passed <laughs> in March that will allow us to actually provide some further um, funding to help us address some of those issues. But that could be eaten up pretty quickly. I mean, you might see a situation where you have this new, new revenue source that comes in. Some of it's dedicated to infrastructure spending and homelessness spending, which thereby allows you to decrease the amount of your general fund right now that you're spending on infrastructure and homelessness, and you alleviate the, the uh, deficit concerns, but you've now this new revenue source isn't going to new funding sources. It's just backfilling what you were previously providing. I mean, that's one of uh, Michael McConnell, the uh, person who debated this tax measure at PolitiFest. That was one of his main points, that this could just be eaten up by deficits, what would you say to somebody who was concerned about that? Well, 
It could, but it could also be the reason that we're able to continue to provide services at the levels that we're currently providing. I mean, let's be clear. If this stuff doesn't pass, what do we have? We have less than what we've got now, and full stop, which is not okay. So the fact is that, yes, while the deficits are happening, they could be eaten up to some degree for these things. However, that allows us to actually have something to land on. And on the other side of the deficits, then we're able to actually ramp up and do some good work. The deficits aren't going to last forever, right? These are, these are cyclical. These things happen. So at the point that we start climbing out of it, then we're actually able to do some interesting things, bond on that money, actually build brick-and-mortar housing, permanent supportive housing solutions, all that good stuff that we want to see happen. None of that exists if we don't actually pass ballot measures that allow us to bring in more revenue to the city. Well, and... I just, I just want to, I mean, this is why we have elected officials. Uh, yes, you know, uh, is it hypothetically possible in that scenario that the city would use TOT money and then stop spending on the general? Yes. Is it possible that no one would notice that they had not increased spending on homeless? No, no, of course. The public expects more money to be spent on homelessness, and the constraint right now is the budget itself. Mm-hmm. This is, and I, I want to correct one thing, Bruce, great question. But you said we're going to have a, a Democrat supermajority, I believe. We already do. Uh, and so, again, to my point about the shift already happened here. We already do. And uh, I think what's going to happen as there are more Democrats on the city council, um, again, is that the thing that they're going to have to grapple with are the financial realities. But I would also point out that the realities of this deficit budget that we are facing right now were not things that were actually caused by the Democratic supermajority. These are things that were actually caused by past policies that were passed that affected things like Prop B, et cetera, things that actually passed in, back in 2012. Yeah, but, but the last two budgets passed unanimously. So. Well, and they were proposed by the Republican mayor. All right. Correct. Bruce, thank you so much. Everybody here. Probably don't need another shirt, but you're welcome to it. Bruce is a wonderful volunteer at PolitiFest. Thank you so much. All right, I, I'm, I'm getting the wrap it up thing, but I have a couple more questions. Just hang in there. Let's do it. You guys can go get some food if you need or whatever. Hang out for a sec. All right, I want to talk about the county supervisor races. District 3 in particular is a big one. Kristen Gaspar. Uh, Ryan, um, you know, it... it, it could have major implications for policy at the county for a long time if she keeps that seat or if she loses that seat. But as Carol pointed out earlier, it's, it's heavily Democratic. It seems like especially hostile to uh, President Trump. And yet we watched her really lean into uh, supporting President Trump, probably more than any, anybody outside the congressional districts really has. And so my question to you is, uh, what does that look like? What does that race look like as it, as it gets closer to the primary? So let's just deal on hard facts here to begin. It is 35% Democrat, 29% Republican, and 36% neither party. Okay. So that's, Thank you. Yeah. So um, not to dispute the but premise the, of your question Well, not whatsoever. just registration, yeah. though, but the actual turnout for Trump in that district was yeah. very bad. That is not a Trump district. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. So, so I'm, can I'm sorry, she so win? Can she win? Hypothetically, yes. <laughs> I actually admire the fact that she is so completely honest about her values and priorities and the fact that she supports Trump and 
likes his uh, policy. Careful, Kel. She's going to put that on a mail piece. She's, she's going to quote you. <laughs> she should quote yeah. me saying that I had, I mean, Carol, I mean, it's, she's honest. I mean, there's yeah. very, she's honest. Period. She's honest about it, which is amazing, right? I mean, it's, it's an, it's not necessarily. It, I, it, I don't know. I feel like I'm going to dispute that a little bit. I, I feel like she tries to have it both ways in a sense because, you know, when she was on the podcast and we tried to pin her down on that, you know, she talked about going to the White House and she framed it as, well, no one else was brave enough to go to the White House I, I and advocate for, for our city's interests. And I knew it would be unpopular. And I was the only one who was willing to take this meeting and she very much tried to not say directly like, yeah, I met with the president. I support him. So I, 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 I think we're all in agreement here that Kristen Gaspar is in a very dicey spot and it has everything to do with kind of how she's chosen to navigate um, this era since the, the uh, 2016 election. Um, but, you know, to, to your issue about like your question of how it, it will impact the county. So the last couple stories I read about what was going on at the county, Kristen Gaspar had been on the losing end of a couple uh, votes. I mean, most, most, let's just be clear. Most things go through on unanimous consent. You know, this is, uh, this, they are a pastor agency, as she pointed out, on a lot of things. On the things that aren't, um, you know, she has not always been on the winning end. So, I mean, the board as it stands right now, uh, you know, and even historically, uh, you know, uh, the chairman of the Republican Party in San Diego has, you know, kind of famously been at war with you know, uh, Republican county supervisors for years now. So, I mean, I, I'm going to, again, dispute whether there really is going to be that significant of a change. And then secondly, I'll point out there's two Democrats running. They are very different Democrats. And so, again, the issue, I think, is, you know, what type of Democrat you get. And um, the fact that there is so much variation between Republicans, is it really going to make that big of a difference on most issues? Well, I want to jump in there. Uh, Carol's motioning. People who are not don't have the pleasure of being able to see her. She's saying, "Yes, we have a big tent. We're a very big tent party." But are they that different? Olga Diaz and Tara Lawson Reamer. I where where are they very far apart on policy? Uh, Carol, you uh, the building trades have weighed in on that race, and they support. We haven't weighed in on that race. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, uh, we but we have very we have Labor Council did. Oh, and Labor Council came down for Tara. But in our own council, we actually have individual, multiple individual unions that have taken either side. So we're, at this point, staying out of it oh, okay. to allow them to do what do they want. Do you think they're different? I think they're not very different. I agree with you, Andy. They're not very different. They're actually they're, they're different in approach, perhaps. But I think that in terms of values and policy positions, I don't think they'd be different. Ryan, I'm open to being corrected. I don't know them yeah, I, that, think, all that well, but I, I don't I, know. I think that they are very different. I mean, uh, Olga Diaz, for one, she spent years on uh, the city council where she was the only, uh, the only Democrat. Um, I think that the experience she has coming out of that um, is, makes her a pretty unique candidate from the standpoint of, you know, she, she was able to get things done on that city council. And so, you know, I mean, that is one. The other candidate comes from a purely activist and political consulting, you know, uh, not to knock my own people, but, you know, <laughs> political consulting background. And so, um, uh, you know, I think that e- even just like the, just the perspectives that they bring to the table, and then you look at kind of their, their history. Well, one of them doesn't have history in office, but you look at Olga's history in office. You know, she's, um, she's been kind of a stridently independent person. Sometimes she's on the wrong side of business groups. Sometimes she's on, she had a huge feud with Mickey Kasparian a while back, you know. So she's a very sort of independent, like makes up her own mind on everything type of Democrat. I think Tara Lawson-Reamer is a, you know, uh, 
a true sort of uh, progressive on the forest end of that spectrum activist. Those are dramatically different types of candidates. Um, and so whether they're answering questions about specific things very differently right now, I don't know. But I, I think they would have very different leadership styles. Well, I think we need to wrap it up there. Um, I do want to make one last point that, that I find. I get a lot of questions a lot about why, um, why the city is so focused on uh, convention centers a lot. Why does, why does the tourism industry demand so much of our attention? And I think there's one important thing you should remember. What we're talking about is the tourism occupancy tax, one of the three major sources of income to the city of San Diego. The city of San Diego at this moment has a 10.5% stake in the visitor industry. And if it had a 10.5% stake in biotech or in uh, you know, telecommunications or non -profit in journalism. nonprofit journalism, <laughs> If it had that kind of equity or revenue share, it would probably care equally as much about that. And that's a big function of what uh, drives our discussion, and, and especially when we have a really in-depth city one. So uh, I'd like to thank Carol Kim from the Building Trades Council. <laughs> Ryan Klumpner from the Housing Commission. And <laughs> And, and Sarah Libby. Thank you to Mission Brewery. Thank you to the Downtown Partnership. And thank you to all our members and supporters who came today. Thanks for listening to the Voice of San Diego podcast, the most popular political affairs podcast recorded in this part of downtown San Diego. And if you've made it to the end of this podcast, you're probably a political junkie. Um, so you should check out the politics report newsletter that Scott and Andy put out every week. You can subscribe to that in the show notes and you can get it online at VOSD.org politics. I'm Sarah Libby, Managing Editor at Voice of San Diego, and this show is produced by Nate John, Megan Wood, and Adriana Heldes. Talk to you next week.